Now please take your Bibles and turn to the prophecy of Zephaniah. As best I can tell, this will be the second to last sermon in this series of of evangelistic messages from the minor prophets. If God is so pleased, I'll preach from Zechariah next week. I'll be away the week after that, and then the last Lord's Day evening in this month, I'll begin my series in Ecclesiastes. But tonight we come to Zephaniah, and we're in the third chapter, and our text will be verses 9 through 13. This is the gospel according to Zephaniah. Listen carefully to this because this is the very word of God. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. And that's the reading of God's word. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word to us now. Father, this is your word, and as it's proclaimed tonight, uh, let it go forth with power. And we pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would be exalted and that you'd enable our ears and our hearts to hear good news. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, Hillary and I had a friend who was a a brilliant instrument repairman, repaired musical instruments. And he served with us in the army band that we were assigned to. And uh, there was an occasion where we were set up for a concert and we'd done our rehearsal and a sound check and then uh, we'd all left the stage uh, some hours before the performance, and there's a very, very expensive instrument that was left up on the stage. Uh, if it means anything to you, if you, you care to know, it was, a, it was a contrabass clarinet. Very expensive. And um, while we were off stage, some of the stage rigging suspended above the stage fell and absolutely destroyed that instrument. Well, this, uh, this friend of ours took it upon himself to, uh, to make that a project. And he repaired that contrabass clarinet, which probably to a lot of people's estimation was damaged beyond repair. He fixed it. He, he repaired it to the point that not only that it was serviceable and playable, but to the point that you couldn't tell it had ever been damaged. Um, and Jesus is like that, except in an infinitely greater sense. 
fallen humanity is tragically like that contrabass clarinet, uh, irreparably broken. What is man in his fallen condition? What's he like? He's wicked, rebellious, destitute, alienated from God and from himself, from one another. And in the midst of all that, ironically, very proud. And Jesus graciously reforms and transforms and heals and restores fallen people. That's what the gospel does. Zephaniah's prophecy, up until the point that we uh, read tonight, is primarily, predominantly focused on judgment. And that's really true of most or perhaps all of the prophets. And they needed to be focused on that. They needed to emphasize warnings and judgment and calls to repentance because that's what God's people needed to hear. They had turned from him. They were worshiping idols. They were sinning against him. They weren't walking with the true and living God. So the prophets have to call out to them and um, call, out them, call them out for their sins and urge them, plead with them to repent. But when we get to this point in Zephaniah, the book, for the remainder of its verses, takes a turn, a new, a new turn, and it focuses on messages of hope, messages of restoration. And what we can learn from this text this evening, I hope, is that it's the Lord Jesus who takes sinners and is building them up into a holy, humble, and united church. And so that will sort of give us our outline right there. We're going to talk about what the gospel does to people and to all of God's elect. Uh, he, He brings gospel purity He produces gospel humility and gospel unity. Purity, humility, unity. All products, deliberate products of the Holy Spirit's application of the redemption accomplished by Christ in the gospel. So first of all, gospel purity. The the passage begins by saying that God's going to change the speech of the peoples. He's going to change it to a pure speech, And as a result of that, they will call upon the Lord and they will serve him. Well, why the focus on speech? Because pure speech, we might say, is representative. Pure speech is representative of comprehensive purity, comprehensive holiness, not just words, but it stands for everything else. Because uh, speech is a synecdoche for one's entire moral being. And you might be thinking, okay, Steve, that'd be really helpful if I knew what a synecdoche was. Well, a synecdoche is a figure of speech. It's a literary device where one thing, a part of something, is put for the whole. We use them all the time in everyday language. Let me give you an example. When you hear the expression, whether or not you've ever been in the Navy or the Marine Corps, if you hear the expression, all hands on deck, hmm? 
That doesn't mean that just this part of people needs to be up there and the rest of you can stay in the rack down below. It means everybody's there, all hands. In the army, we say boots on ground. It doesn't just mean boots. It means there need to be feet in those boots and the rest of the person needs to be above those feet, you see. But that's a synecdoche. Um, and you see a really pronounced example of that in Isaiah chapter 6. That glorious passage where Isaiah says he, he beholds the Lord. He saw the Lord high and lifted up and he describes what he saw, or at least he attempts to. And he was so overwhelmed by the, the awesome appearance of the Lord that he said, I'm undone. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. And what he meant was, he's a sinful man. But he expressed that sinfulness of his whole nature uh, in terms of his speech. Not only was he a man of unclean lips, but he dwelt among a people of unclean lips. And that was similar to what we're reading here in Zephaniah. God is going to change their speech to a pure speech, meaning he's going to comprehensively purify them. Another reason why the emphasis here is on speech is because if you think about this, once a speech, a person's speech is really a window, isn't it? It's a window into one's heart. You can't see my heart. I can't see your heart. We can't read minds. We don't know what's inside. But when a person speaks, it gives you some insight into what's inside, doesn't it? Jesus said so. Matthew Chapter 12, verse 34, when he's rebuking sinners in his own day, he says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So again, we can't claim to know another person's heart, but they reveal their heart. You reveal your heart, I reveal mine when we talk. So there's that. And then, speech is an indicator. Again, according to the Lord Jesus Christ, speech is an indicator of the condition of one's soul, of one's heart. Later on in that same chapter, just a few verses later, Matthew 12, verse 37, Jesus says, For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Now when God says he's going to change the people's speech, um, or that word can even be translated, it often uh, suggests transformation. He's going to change speech to a pure speech. That means not just speech, but he's going to produce, he's going to bring forth a full and whole-souled purity. That's what God's saving work does. It purifies people. Remember in Malachi chapter 3 is words that were uh, made uh, so um, familiar by Handel in his Messiah. He shall purify the sons of Levi that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. That's what God does in the gospel. He purifies. And in our text tonight, the result of this purification, when God works in the lives of his people and purifies their speech, the outcome is going to be this. They're going to call on the name of the Lord. And they're going to serve him with one accord. 
And then the text actually even explicitly goes beyond just speech later when it says, uh, they shall do no injustice. So he's going to purify their speech, but their actions are going to become pure too. They're not any longer going to be guilty of injustice. They're going to serve the Lord. They're going to call upon him. They're going to be a just people. But then the passage at the end, at least the passage that we're considering tonight, comes back around to speech again in verse 13, where he says, There shall be found in their mouth, there shall, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. They shall speak no lies. So again, the speech is put forward as the, as the barometer, we might say, of their souls. In verse 11, The Lord God speaks of purging and purifying their ranks. I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones. It's reminiscent of a shepherd, as Jesus describes it in Matthew 25. He he separates the sheep from the goats. Or even, remember the... uh, what Pastor Mark mentioned this morning in the sermon and then even when he was fencing the table. He talked about that parable of the, of the wedding guest who didn't have proper garments and he was cast out. God's going to purify the ranks of his people. We see it in the parable of the wheat and the tares. Matthew thirteen thirty. The workers realized that there were weeds growing among the wheat, and they asked their master, should we, should we pull up the wheat, or pull up the, the weeds? And he says, no, uh, let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. You see, God makes a separation. He makes a distinction. And he's going to purge his people remove all sources of offense. He speaks in verse 11 also of the removal of the shame of their past sins. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Why? Because God's going to erase them from their record. So the gospel purifies people and enables them to serve Christ. That's gospel purity. But then we go on to gospel humility. This passage speaks of pride. And pride is what we might call a root sin. Really fascinating description of pride is given by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity in a chapter that he he titled The Great Sin. And he talks about how uh, pride is, is something that every human being has It's something that everyone loathes when they see it in other people and no one realizes that they have it themselves. Pride is a root sin because it gives rise to all manner of other sins. It's similar in that way to what Paul said about the love of money in 1 Timothy. He says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So is pride. Pride is exactly the same. Lots and lots of other sins spring up from the soil of the pride that's in our hearts. And one thing the Holy Spirit does, as he takes the redemption that was accomplished by Christ and he applies it to sinners, 
is he humbles people. He takes proud sinners and humbles them. So look with me again at verse 11. He says in verse 11, in the middle of that verse, For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. God is going to remove from the midst of his people their proudly exulting ones. Well, how is he going to do that? God eliminates pride from among his people in two ways. The first is by casting the proud away from himself and from his people. That's what we see when he uses that word remove. I'm going to get rid of the proud. God purges away the wicked. We get a glimpse of that. We see an illustration of that in Matthew 25 once again. When Jesus says, the end of his ministry, before he goes on to his suffering and death, he says, when, when the Son of Man comes in his glory with all the holy angels, he's going to sit on his glorious throne and he's going to separate the people from one another the way a, sheep, a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He's going to put the, the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And the goats represent the proud, haughty ones, sinners who've never repented. And what's he going to say to them? Depart from me, you who are cursed. He's going to send them away. Get out of my sight, he says to them. And they'll be cast into eternal torments. That's one way that he removes the proudly exalted ones from his people. But there's another way, too. It has more to do with the people on his right, the sheep, the elect, his children, his people. What's he going to do for them? He says to them, you shall no longer be haughty, in a sense. Just as God changes the, the speech of people, he changes their hearts. He takes proud hearts and he humbles them. And there you see the contrast to the wicked uh, to whom Jesus said, depart from me, you who are cursed. What he says to the people on his right is, come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for you. Why? Because you saw me when I was hungry and you fed me. You came to me when I was in prison. And, and you know the story. He went on to say those things. And you see the humility of the people on his right, when they respond by saying, Lord, when did we do any of that? When did we do that for you? And he says, inasmuch as you did it for one of the least of these, my children, you did it unto me. So there you see that humility. Look back with me at Zephaniah chapter 2. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. See, this is a theme Zephaniah has been working up to. The casting away of the proudly exultant ones and the establishing for himself by God of a people that are humble and lowly. <clears throat> Faith and humility go hand in hand. They accompany one another. Where there's true faith, there's also going to be humility. Why? Because if you're going to call on the name of the Lord God Almighty, to do so is to humbly express your dependence. 
To call on him is to say to the Lord, I need you. To serve the Lord God is to acknowledge him as Lord and Master and yourself as his servant. To seek refuge in the name of Yahweh is an expression of faith. It's an expression of trust. It acknowledges our vulnerability. It acknowledges the fact that we need refuge. We need shelter from the stormy blast. We need to be hidden in the cleft of the rock and covered by his hand. To seek refuge in God is to acknowledge that we need a protector. And all that takes humility. Because pride says, I'm okay, I'm good. I'll be fine. Hillary and I also had a friend uh, in those same days back in that uh, unit we were assigned to. He was a new Christian. And when he came to faith, he was on fire. I think he, he had never read the Bible before, but when he, once he was converted, he read the whole Bible in like three months. He had tremendous zeal for evangelism. He, he loved to share the gospel with people, and he did it uh, on a regular basis. He did it very avidly. And I remember riding around in a car with him on one occasion. Was this fellow and, and me and maybe one or two other uh, young men. And this friend of ours was expressing dismay and discouragement and... Um, frustration to a certain extent, I guess, that when he shared the gospel with people, they didn't accept it. He'd encourage people to call on the name of the Lord, and, and they wouldn't do it. They didn't listen to his message. And he couldn't understand why somebody wouldn't accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He was so disheartened and frustrated that people wouldn't uh, respond in faith to the gospel. And I remember him saying this. He wondered, why, why would anybody reject the gospel? And he said, these were his words, there's nothing offensive about it. Now remember, he was a young Christian. And he had read the whole Bible, but I think this is something he hadn't quite picked up on yet. That there is something offensive about the gospel. There's something very offensive about the gospel to man's pride. Because what the gospel does is it puts down man's pride. The gospel is highly offensive to man's pride and self-reliance. Man's pride says, I'm good. God says, you're not. Man's pride says, I got this. God says, no, you don't. The gospel requires someone to acknowledge something like what we say in our membership question, questions. I'm a sinner in God's sight. I justly deserve his displeasure, and I have no hope. And that's offensive to man's pride. But there's only one kind of person that God Almighty is willing to dwell with, that he's willing to fellowship with, to commune with, and that kind of person is described in Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place 
and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God dwells in the high and holy place, and guess what? None of us can get there. But he'll dwell with us down here, with the crushed in spirit. But man thinks, you know, I can get up here somewhere, and God will meet me there. No. If you're not in the high and holy place, the only place you can meet God is in the place of contrition. Well, that brings us to gospel unity, because that place of contrition is where God brings all of his children The gospel creates purity, it creates humility, but it also creates unity. This speech that God is going to bring about, that he's going to create in his people, is not only a pure speech, but it's a unified speech. We'll all have one language. He's going to change the speech of peoples. And let's... uh, Give careful attention to the grammar there. He's going to change the speech of the peoples, not of a nation, but all the nations, so that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord, and they will serve him together, it says, with one accord, or one uh, English version translates that, and I think it brings out the unity very nicely. It says, they'll all serve him shoulder to shoulder. Because the Hebrew actually says, with one shoulder, meaning side by side, serving the Lord. There's going to be this unity. And God is creating that even now. God is gathering worshipers, verse 10, from rivers beyond, from beyond the rivers of Cush, that's that's way down south of Egypt. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. When a person is drawn to Christ, and we we emphasize this, when a person is drawn to Christ, he or she is drawn to Christ's church. He's not drawn to Christ to be a lone ranger. He's drawn into the body. And you see that expression, daughter. You find that frequently in the prophets especially, when he speaks of, for instance, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed one, that when, when the, the word daughter is used figuratively there like it is uh, in this verse, it expresses solidarity. That word daughter is used frequently to indicate a people group. So you'll see very often in, in the Old Testament uh, reference to the daughter of Zion. He's talking about his covenant people. Sometimes you see the daughter of Babylon. And he uses that expression when he's saying, I'm going to bring judgment on the people of Babylon. Daughter of Babylon is another way of just kind of lumping them all together. You see, daughter of Egypt and and so on and so forth. But it expresses solidarity. It expresses unity. And that unity comes out even more when God likens his people, the ones who are left in Israel, to a flock. Look at verse 13 again. They shall graze and lie down, and none, none shall make them afraid. God makes provision for them, in other words. He expresses that by the fact that they're going to graze. There's going to be plentiful space for them. 
plentiful provision. He gives them rest, suggested by the fact that they're going to lie down. And he protects them. None shall make them afraid. <clears throat> Remember in Genesis 11, God had told the people after the flood, he'd renewed that command to go and fill the earth, multiply, and, uh, and the people decided uh, as they moved eastward, uh, they didn't want to fill the earth, they just wanted to hunker down together. They wanted to build a big city and put a gigantic tower in it so they could make a name for themselves. And God said, that's not going to happen. And that's when he confused their languages. And when their languages were confused and they couldn't understand one another, then they had to scatter, they had to disperse. That's what God did at Babel. He mixed their speech and divided them. What's happening in this text tonight, though? The opposite. He's turning their speech back. He's purifying it. He's giving them the same language so that people will be united. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, is doing through the Gospel. The Good Shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. What's the result? Sins are forgiven. He's gathering a people from every tribe and tongue and nation on earth. And the final result, as he himself put it, is that there's going to be one flock and one shepherd. And then that, Christ, that, that prayer that Christ prayed will be answered. He'll be granted his request. What did he pray? He, he prays for his people. Father, I pray for them that they may be one. And that's going to happen. It's happening even now. By increments. But it will one day be fulfilled. And we'll see, even as we have tastes of this in our congregations now and within fellowships and denominations, we, we have a sense of this gospel unity. It's all going to be complete. It's going to be perfect when we enter into glory. That's gospel unity. Well, each one of us in our own natural state and every Man, woman, child on earth in their natural state is like that broken instrument I was talking about at the beginning. It's not, uh, it, it actually helps the illustration, I think, for the fact that that instrument was kind of you know, rare and very expensive, had value, but it was broken, ruined beyond repair. And we kind of acknowledge that about ourselves when we take that membership vow and acknowledge, I'm a sinner in the sight of God. I justly deserve his displeasure. It's not just that he's cranky or being harsh. I justly deserve the displeasure of God. I deserve his wrath. And I have no hope except for his sovereign mercy. Well, thanks be to God, our sovereign, merciful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, takes wicked, deceitful people and he purifies them. He takes proud, haughty people, he makes them humble. He takes rebellious, selfish, scattered people and he makes them one flock. And that's really what the gospel is all about. 
It's about an undoing of sin. It's about an undoing of the fall, a reversal of it. It's an undoing of all the harm and the damage and the offense that mankind's sin has done. That's why Jesus says at the end of the book of Revelation, Behold, I am making all things new. Do you want to be made new? Receive and rest upon Christ alone as he's offered to you in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and the renewing power of his gospel. Thank you that through the power of your Holy Spirit, who he sent, whom he poured forth, who proceeds from you and from your son, you're working purity and humility and unity in people all over this world. Please continue to do that work. Add to your church. Build us up in these qualities. Make us more like Christ. And Lord, please hasten the coming of your kingdom of glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.